This is Speaking Easy Theology with Chris Green. I'll begin this second episode in the series, The Metaphysics of Advent, with Michael's question, which he posted in response to the first in the series. He's asking specifically about what it means to say that God is love if we're saying, as I did, that God is not constrained by his nature. So here's Michael's question, and I'll answer first in the way that I think Jensen might, and then go on to to my own thoughts about it. Maybe I did not get your point. I've always thought that if God is love, the ontological reality of love, then would it not be true that God is constrained to act only in accordance with love? That is, God could not be non-loving. Isn't that a form of canonic self-restraint? And I accept that what God knows to be love may be different to what we want or expect. That is, God determines what love is. Can God be constrained by his own nature? Mustn't God be constrained by his own nature if God is love? And isn't that a form of canonic self-restraint? So let let me talk first about how I think Jensen answers that question and why he answers it the way that he does. And then give give my own take, which is substantially different from from Jensen's. Jensen's work, and I, I think this is often missed, even by careful readers of of his of his work over the years. His work is highly stylized. He's he pre-commits himself to certain ways of speaking and has deep aversion to the platitudes and the cliches that are kind of at hand for us. So for example, he he has a deep aversion to mystery and will and will again and again move around it where other theologians would appeal to mystery he he sees laziness a kind of refusal to do the work that's required. So of course, he would agree in some sense that God is mystery but he refuses to use that language or that concept, at least in the ways that it's normally used, not just popularly, but even by professional theologians. Same thing with silence. He, he has an aversion to traditional language about silence. And in, the, in this way, he's markedly different from... Even other Lutheran theologians I think Bonhoeffer, I would say, I, I personally probably know best. And so you, you can see that these pre-commitments that Jensen has, you know, determined for him, predetermined for him what he will and won't say, how he's going to be able to say it. And something like that holds true for love as well. So kind of as a beginning point, or answering your question, Michael, I'm going to read this passage from Jensen's Systematics, the chapter on the character of creation. And he's talking specifically about God's motive in creating, right? I'm not going to read the entire passage. It starts on page 17. And I, I want to read just, just a bit of it, just enough for you to get the line of thought. So this is actually section two in the chapter of his systematics, first first volume. Two classical questions intertwine in the question of God's motive in creation. 
one we discussed earlier. Would the Son have become incarnate had humankind not sinned? The question is usually posed. I think I, I think a moment ago I said this was volume one, but it's volume two. So forgive me for that. So yeah, volume two, the chapter on the character of creation, page 17 in that in that second volume. It's the second section of the chapter. So he's beginning with this question that he asked in volume one, would the son have become incarnate had humankind not sinned? And he says, the question is usually posed about the motive of the incarnation, and that is how we then treated it. But of course, it is about the motive of creation also. If there might have been creation, but no incarnation, because there contingently had been no sin, then it is not the incarnate son for whom God eternally intends the world. And if the incarnate son is not the reason for the world, what is? So remember that that's the kind of Jensonian assumption that the incarnate son is the reason for the world and the incarnate son is the dead and resurrected one. The other question, the other classical question may seem esoteric, but is not, does God create for the creature's sake or for his own? Does God create for our sake or does God create for God's own sake? The tradition was summarized by the First Vatican Council. God creates out of his own goodness and to manifest his perfection. God creates out of his goodness to manifest his perfection. We want immediately to say not only that both propositions are true, but that they are somehow equivalent. So does God create for his own sake? Yes. Does he create for creatures' sake? Yes. And you can already anticipate why Jensen is going to say that, because Jesus is both God and us. Jesus is divine and human. He personally is the eternal one and the created one. Irenaeus provides a beautiful aphorism. The glory of God is the living human person. The life of a human person is the vision of God. But how can that work out? So he's told you, Jensen's given you his commitment that both are true. God creates for his own sake and for his creature's sake. And now he wants to work out how that is one motive. He's going to do it, of course, Christologically. But I, I'm interested now. All, all of that, I, I, I think, is right and to be expected. But now you're going to hear Jensen, not only because stylistically he's committed to steering away from what's most familiar and has, and therefore has become cliched in some sense. And that those cliches and platitudes are hiding a kind of theological negligence, what I called laziness a moment ago, but also because there's a contrariness in him. So it, yes, he is high, highly stylized. Yes, he is trying to find a way to do the work and not take shortcuts. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And the easy way, is, is rarely the right way for him. He's convinced that the easy way in theology is rarely the right way because it doesn't, it doesn't get you to thinking and finding language for what's actually being affirmed or denied. But I want you to, there, there's another dimension to it too, which is, is he's contrarian at times and often he's reacting against whatever the dominant lines of thought are the, the dominant waves of thought in the world where he is most at home. So it, amongst mainline Protestants, amongst liberal and post-liberal theologians. 
And you can hear that here and what he's going to say about love. So now I'm going to read just a bit from this, this section and listen to what he's denying. The, the option that God creates simply for our sake, out of sheer love, quote-unquote, is tempting and in modernity has often been used with plausible arguments. So he talks about the 19th century Lutheran, Godfrey Thomasius, the teaching, quote, usual since Anselm that the glory of God is the final end of creation seems to me to confuse the outcome with the founding purpose. For the creation is indeed a glorification of God, but what moves him to, to create, this is Thomasius, is not this glorification of himself that he does not need, but love alone. So, this is 19th century Lutheran affirmation. Jensen hears in that a kind of liberal platitude, a cliche that hides the Christological truth. I'm, I'm not sure he's right about that. In fact, I'll speak to my disagreements in a moment, but that that's the contrarian impulse. Despite its seeming piety, this move is disastrous. Its dominance in popular theology is doubtless one cause of late modernity's degradation of deity into a servant of our self-help. The tradition had taught that God was the final cause of creation. That is, that what the creature is for is God, so that the creature's good is determined by God's antecedent moral character. Much modern popular theology, however, has evaded that antecedent determination, and so been at liberty to suppose that God is so, quote-unquote, unconditionally loving, or quote-unquote, accepting, or something of the sort, that whatever we take to be our good must be what he created us to be. The 20th century English theologian P.T. Forsyth rebutted such sentimentality with holy traditional language. And now he quotes Forsyth, If he slew us, we should praise his holy name. It is a question not of his utility to us, but of ours to him. And here, here you hear, again, the contrarian, you hear the traditionalist, you hear something like a prophetic critique. It, you know, depends on where you're standing and what you make of it. But I, I think you could see Jensen's reaction is to this degradation of deity into a servant of our self help, in which talking about God creating us out of love alone, in the way that Thomasius does, ends up in effect, leaving us with the impression that God is just there to do our bidding, right? That God is a resource for us, that God is useful, indeed endlessly useful, and that we we should love God because God is always there for what we need. And Jensen sees in that a disease, a kind of sickness. Having kind of denied that, he then immediately turns around to deny the contrary that God creates for his own sake or for his own satisfaction alone. That, he says, is also not appropriate to the gospel. And then he takes up Jonathan Edwards and his Puritan Calvinist theology to critique it. And this is another oddity in Jensen, like one one that I think is often underappreciated. I mean, he's Jensen obviously has deep debts to Bart. In fact, in the in the last part of this section, he he returns to a kind of Bartian commitment about the place of sin and death in the purposes of God, which is where I most sharply disagree with him. I think he he returns to Bart there via Edwards, another Calvinist. So this this is where Jensen's theology is most 
reformed in, in his account of God's motive in creating and he, in his attempts to explain why the world is the way it is, given that God is the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And Edwards' theology gives him a way of getting there. And I I haven't done this. I I didn't do this when I wrote the book, and I haven't done it since. But I've always been interested in trying to work out who the primary influences are on the different aspects of Jensen's theology. I do know this. Where Jensen is most dependent on Edwards and Bart, I disagree with him most sharply. And I think if if I'm reading him rightly and if I understand my own thoughts, it's in those places that Jensen is most reformed. He's he's furthest removed from the patristic tradition. I almost said patristic consensus, but that that's misleading. I, I don't like that language. He, he's most removed from his dialogue with Origen or Maximus and Gregory and is most aligned with the Reformed tradition, the Calvinist tradition, I, I think that that's where my disagreements are going to come. So at the end of this, end of this section, which I, again, I won't take time to read now, he affirms Edward's statements about why God creates. There was, as it were, an eternal society or family in the Godhead. This is a reference to what you know is often called eternity past, right? In God quote-unquote, before creation, there was an eternal society or family in the Godhead, in the trinity of persons. It seems to be God's design to admit the church into the divine family as his son's wife. That's Jonathan Edwards. And then one more quote, heaven and earth were created that the son of God might be complete in a spouse. And Jensen says of that, the final goal of creation is thus at once God and his creature united in Christ, the totus Christus. And there's the Augustinian line. So here, here's Jensen, again, at his most reform, his most Augustinian. And just a footnote here. Eriugena, who, again, another influence for me, contends that it is possible to reconcile Augustine and Maximus, West and East, the kind of Leonine emphasis following Chalcedon and the Cerulean one. I mean, that that's one way of understanding what Ariogen is doing in his work. Whether he's successful or not, I mean, we will endlessly argue about that. But here, I think there are times in which Jensen is up to something like that. He's He's trying to to reconcile these various traditions because he's writing theology for a future unified church, a church with visible unity. And, and therefore sometimes is very Western, sometimes very Eastern, if we can put it that crassly here though, I think he's deeply Augustinian Calvinist reformed Bardian. And he concludes that section by saying that Bart's chief concern in his mature work is that Christ's death and resurrection for sinners is not to be construed as a, quote, wretched expedient in view of the failure of a plan that originally had, that had originally a different intention and form. Right? So he sees in his reading of Bart, Bart's primary concern is that we not think of death and resurrection. We not think of Good Friday and Easter as a wretched expedient 
made necessary by the failure of a plan that had originally purposed something else. On the contrary, Jensen says, creation is, and now he quotes Bart again, to prepare the sphere in which the institution and history of the covenant takes place and the subject that is to be God's partner in this history. End quote. And the content of this eternal covenant is Jesus Christ just as he appears in the Gospels. That's Jensen's explanation. God's eternal decision is made, quote, exactly as it is fulfilled and revealed in time. And then he gives this bluntly explicit formula, as he calls it, because servatio, therefore creatio. Indeed, when God declares his creation good, it is in view of both sides of its destiny. This is Bart again. Its glorious salvation and the sin from which it needs saving. Jensen's words, Bart's idea. Creation is good in both sides of its destiny, its salvation and its sin from which it needs saving. And that, in the, th- in the third section of the chapter, brings Jensen to say what I most sharply disagree with him about. In, in all of his work, and, and of course there are many points of disagreement, as there must be, but this is the sharpest point of disagreement. If the creation is good, and if what is good it is good for is Jesus' resurrection, then there is a sense in which also the crucifixion must be an intermediate good. There cannot be a resurrection of someone who has not died. And if the crucifixion is for sin, there must even be some conceptually and morally nearly unmanageable sense in which the fallenness of the creation is again an intermediate good. Such doctrines as that of Paul Tillich, that creation and fall are the same relation, are wrong, but not preposterous. And again, I keep saying it. That's where I I leave Jens most completely. I, I think that's flat out wrong and yet as always i want to make sure that we're hearing him on his own terms and we understand why he's making the decision he's making he again is critiquing pushing back on negligent poorly thought out theologies of creation that appeal to love and unconditional love in in ways that have the effect of leaving us unanswerable before God, that, that devolve into the, the worst kind of self-absorption and idolatry in which God becomes a, a resource for me to, to colonize, a resource for me to exploit. And I think Jensen rightly rejects that. He, he rightly identifies that much talk about the love of God is is lazy and negligent, and that it covers not just poor thinking, but a sinful ambition to make God useful. And I think Jens is right there to to call our attention to what Augustine will say, the ways in which Augustine warns against love that has become diseased. And I think I think we might say that much of what we say about God's love is concupiscent. It, it, we are projecting onto God our a satisfaction for our lusts. At, at least that's the temptation. And, and we have to find ways to critique that. So now directly to your question, Michael, about does God's love constrain God. I think what Jensen would say first and foremost is, of course not. God is love. Yes. 
but God is not love in such a way that God is limited by it. He certainly, Jens would certainly reject the idea that love is canonic self-restraint. That when we talk about God and God's love, we must emphasize, and, and this again, I think is right. God's love for God, as well as God's love for us, a love that is one in the love of the Father through the Spirit of the Son, or the love of the Son because of and along with the Spirit. So I think it's important, and Jens helps us here, to remember that when we talk about God being love, we must not reduce that to God being loving toward us or to say that God's nature is love and that is primarily and essentially about the way that God relates to us. That is also primarily and essentially about how God relates to God. And on that point, I think that point in particular, I think Jens is right. But I, I don't share his reaction against the claim that God creates out of sheer love. And I, I would agree. I, I think what Timisius said is exactly right, that God does not create for his own glory, but for ours. We want to, though, go on to say that what is our glory is also God's, and that both are accomplished in in the person of Jesus. Now, Here's the way I would say it, the, the way that I would spell it out, le, you know, leaving Jensen out of the conversation, so to speak. I don't think it's right to think about self-restraint in God, at least not primarily. Kenosis is self-disclosure. It's self-emptying. It's in the sense that it is the pouring out of the fullness of the self. You know, it's it's a full a fullness. It, it's not an emptying out in the sense of God becoming less. And so it, there is restraint, but there's also restraintlessness, right? In which God is canonically unrestrained. The, the emptying is as wild as it is controlled. What's happening in Christ is both something like God fasting from God's self, to use a language that Daniela Augustine uses, and a way of God simply being the feast he is. Both are true at once, and they're true in the way that all our language is true. They are the least inadequate ways we have of talking about the goodness that is beyond goodness, the glory that is beyond glory, the the, the ways in which God is working with us that can be trusted and celebrated and yet are beyond anything we can ask or think. So we don't want to limit kenosis to self-restraint, to God fasting from God. We want to emphasize that in the incarnation, Jesus is not becoming less of himself in order for, for us to know him, but he's bringing the fullness of himself to bear on us in this way. And that, therefore, is a revelation of how God's life works. To say that God is love is not to say that God is sacrificially self-denying and therefore leaving room 
for the father to be the father and the son to be the son and the spirit to be this to the spirit in this kind of endless dance of deference and self-effacement that is a poetic way of talking about what love can be if it's needed but of course in the inner life of god that that kind of deference that that kind of self-denying deference that kind of self-effacing deference isn't needed it it isn't required God is fully God. There's nothing of himself that he has to hide in order to be with God. And in hiding himself for us, it's only in order for what is revealed to do its work on us. Let me let me give an example from everyday life, as we say. In our relationships, our person-to-person relationships day-to-day, we're constantly having to practice self-restraint. We, we have to be careful about what we say and how we say it, what we show and, and what we keep hidden with the people who are around us, with, with acquaintances, with family members, with, with strangers. We, we, have to, we have to have a measure of discernment about how transparent to be and when to be vulnerable and when not to be vulnerable. And all of that is made necessary by the gone wrongness of the world and by the fact that there and or by the fact that there must be time and space for growth to happen. And so we have to practice that kind of self-restraint because not everyone is mature enough to engage the fullness of what we know or what we're feeling and because some people can't be trusted with it. And God, in the way that God cares for us, can and does practice what for us looks like self-restraint because God is working with our immaturity and with our gone wrongness, with, with those aspects of us that are still untrustworthy, that, that cannot be depended upon. You, th- this is what we mean when we talk about the patience of God. We talk about God's suffering with us, God's long-suffering care for us. All of that is what we would have to call self-restraint. What I'm emphasizing is that in God as God, such self-restraint is unnecessary. And when God is being God with us, that self-restraint, as we experience it, is actually an expression of God's full self, the the full self-disclosure, which he's carefully giving to us so that we're not undone by it or overcome by it. But it's not God being less of himself. It's God measuring out to us what we can know of his fullness as that fullness is happening to us. So then, when we say that God is love, we're not describing a nature that exists, in a sense, independently of or in ways that could override God's personal freedom. To say that God is love is to say this is how he personally is. This is the kind of life he lives, that that his nature, what we call nature, whatever it means, it's a way of trying to describe the integrity of or the character of the way God personally is, the way God personally is with God and the way God is personally with us. So, no, God's not restrained by that. What we can know of God at any point is fitted to us. It's constrained by our inability 
to take it all in. It's constrained by our immaturity or our unfaithfulness, our lack of confidence in God, our, our unreadiness for the fullness of God. But that's less God denying himself and more God giving his fullness to us in a way that is fitted to our capacities to receive it. I don't want to repeat myself over and over again, but I, I hope you're you're starting to see why I want to avoid any kind of straightforward talk of God denying himself, fasting from himself, and leaving it at that. To the question, can, can God be non-loving? No, but not, again, because something called his nature keeps him from it but precisely because he actively is loving. That's just who he personally is. This is how God lives, and this is who God is. There aren't in God instincts against love that he somehow overcomes. Or to put it it differently, it's not as if God's personal freedom sometimes makes him want not to love, and yet something deeper, this nature of love, keeps him from doing what he would want to do personally. We, we can't pair off person and nature in God in those ways. God just personally is loving. That's all there is to God, is the love that is the Father and the Spirit and the Son who is the total Christ. That's, that's just who God is. As Jens will say, and here he's drawing on Aquinas, another Western theologian, that God that, that God is these subsisting relations. That, that What there is to God is the Father being the Father for the Son and the Spirit through the Spirit, and the Son being the Son for the Father through the Spirit and in the Spirit, and the Spirit being the Spirit for the Father and the Son. These it, resting upon the Son as as desired and willed by the Father. All, all of these ways of talking are ways of emphasizing that this, this is how God personally is, how he goes about being God. And we, we don't want to ever leave the impression that God personally might want something other than to be the God he is as Father, Son, and Spirit, and as our Lord, they're, 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 he's not constrained by a nature against what he personally would desire. Like that conflictedness is not in God. That's the key. That th- there's, there's no conflict in God that has to be overcome. God does not need to be personally brought to heal by his nature. God's personal freedom just is this love. Now, that might not have helped much, but but hopefully... It's at least the beginning of a response to to your question, Michael, which is which is a good one. Now to Cameron's question. Cameron has been reading Jensen's On the Ascension, an essay I will reference again later. And he points out that there Jens agrees with Bart's doctrine of heaven, that heaven is the place God has made within creation to be near his creatures in the way that they need him to be. But then he provides a Lutheran critique of it. 
You mentioned this distinction in your remarks, Cameron says. Bart argues that heaven is the place in creation where God's movement within, within creation begins, but then goes on to argue that this makes the boundary between heaven and earth momentary and unpredictable, and this is where Jensen critique begins. He quotes Luther, go to the place where the word is spoken and the sacraments ministered and there set up the title gate of heaven. For Luther, heaven simply is what we enter as we live in the church. And you talk a bit more about the difference between Reformed and Lutheran Christologies. Is it is it that in Reformed Christology we have a sort of split between the eternal son and the man Jesus? Or is there more that I'm not seeing? So obviously you can't do justice, anything like justice, to this question. But here's here's where I would start, Cameron. First, yes, I think Reformed theology, Reformed Christology in particular, is always pulling hard toward some version of Nestorianism in which you you have some ill-fittedness between the Son and Jesus, between the Word, the eternal Word, the eternal Son, and the man Jesus, so that you, you get a, a kind of deep asymmetry. So if not out-and-out conflict or otherness, if not full-on Nestorianism, then you get a kind of quasi-Nestorian ill-fittedness between the Son and Jesus. And that's largely because there are static notions of nature, the divine nature and the human nature, that are driving the conversation. I, I think the Lutherans are absolutely right here. And here, Jensen is his least reformed. He's, he's most Lutheran and therefore ready to, his theology resonates with that neo-Chalcedonian synthesis precisely at this point because he breaks so sharply from reform tradition but in reform tradition here i'm thinking of calvin and his successors there there is a stable static even account of nature we know what bodies are capable of calvin will say we know that bodies must take up space that bodies must have place and therefore we can work our theology of the sacraments work our theology of ascension, work our theology of resurrection, work our theology of last judgment, et cetera, et cetera, knowing this given that we know what bodies are and are capable of. And so I mentioned this essay last time, what Jens will say about the capax, the finitum capax infinity. He's very much with the Lutherans on this point. The finite is capable of the infinite and very much against the reformed on this point, because the Reformed are going to say, Calvin is going to say, the finite is not capable of the infinite, right? The, the infinite is the infinite, the finite is the finite. In fact, this is this is not exactly fair, but it's it's fair enough to be part of the conversation that in Reformed Christologies, God is defined by what we are, and we are defined by what God is in negating ways. Right? So we we are, by definition, what God is not. God is what we are. God is defined by what we are not. And, and those ways of construing the divine human relationship, of course, mean that there is what I keep calling an ill-fittedness that runs right through the divine human relationship. It's a problem. But you, you have an essential problem, which is one of the reasons that you get doctrines like double predestination, in which 
in order to show the fullness of his character and nature, God has to act in ways that are opposed. He must show mercy to some, justice to others. He must love some and not love others. He must, you know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Both are necessary to show this this full range of God's being and character. You, you've probably heard me reference this before, but the the church I grew up in, Pentecostal churches that I that kind of nurtured me, they they had a catechism, and in that catechism there was an account of a deeply reformed account of the the natures right and i i, I want to open it up here and read just a bit of it i want you to hear how it speaks of love which i just talked about in response to michael's question but also how it thinks of the relation of the divine divine to the human right so here's in the chapter in from this catechism on redemption one of the questions is was god's love sufficient to save man? And the answer is no. His love is the source of redemption, but not the means of salvation. Why was God's love not sufficient to save man? And here you're going to get a a very reformed answer, because God is not only love, but holy, righteous, and just. God is not only love. He's also holy. He's also righteous. He's also just. So you hear this tension, right? That's assumed to be in the divine nature. So there, there are different ways in which you can construe where the tensions are. You, you could say that this is just in the divine nature. You could, you could plot it on the relationship of the son to the father or the father to the son, which is what often happens in popular theology, not, and not only popular theology. You can see it as what is forced to the surface, so to speak, what comes up in God when God is brought into relationship with creatures and or when God is brought into relationship with sin. And and here's the tension. Is there anyone who can save man? Next question. Yes, Jesus Christ is the one and only savior of mankind. How can Jesus Christ save? Because he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. What made the death of Christ efficacious for man? Jesus Christ was both God and man, and as he was sinless in his own person and character, he could offer himself as a substitute for the guilty. How could the death of Christ provide a basis on which God could be just in justifying the wicked? Notice, you just get how question after how question after how question, which when we read Bonifer, I pointed out that he, he doesn't think these how questions are good questions to ask. The question is who, not how. Because again, the emphasis is on the person, not static conceptions of natures. Listen to this answer, which again, deeply reformed. The atonement made by the death of Christ harmonized all of God's attributes. He was holy and his obedience to God's law and will was perfect so that God cannot require anything in the way of purity and obedience that is not found in Christ. Then this sinless one was made sin for man and died as our substitute so that we can be accepted and made righteous in him. So Christ harmonizes the attributes of God. And he does so by drawing together the holiness, the justice, and the love. Earlier, the very beginning of the catechism, we have spelled out for us what the character of God is, what the nature of God is. I, I often will make a distinction between character and nature just for the 
sake of explication, but traditionally, they're essentially synonymous terms. Now we're right at the very beginning of the catechism. The first question, who is God? And that's a person question, but it's given a nature answer. The only self-existent, all-wise, almighty, all-merciful, and absolutely perfect being. What is the Godhead? Notice that's a nature question. You're going to get a person, personal answer. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are the three persons in the Holy Trinity equal? Yes, they are co-eternal. Notice the plural pronoun. They are co-eternal and equal in, and now listen to this, this kind of run of attributes. They're equal in wisdom, love, power, holiness, justice, and dignity. Wisdom, love, power, holiness, justice, and dignity. And it's those attributes that this vision of God and of salvation are believed to have been harmonized in Jesus. That is Reformed theology, or at least an expression of Reformed theology. Again, we got to be careful here because there are endless ranges of varieties here. And I, I don't, I don't mean to paint it all with with one color. This is just to kind of start a conversation to help us start to understand what's at stake in the differences. There are very real differences, although the shades of difference are very fine sometimes. And very few theologians are are truly consistent across the whole of their work. In fact, I'm not sure anyone is truly wholly consistent across. The whole other work. I mean, look at Augustine's retractions. I mean, he's kind of recognizing at the end of his life his own, some of his own inconsistencies. And, of course, making other inconsistencies by what he says about supposed ones. But, again, with all those caveats aside, notice that here in this version of the Reformed tradition, Reformed Christological vision, Jesus is the one who harmonizes what is intention in God because of God loving us who are unworthy of it and who are incapable of receiving the fullness of that love. So that, I think, is what's at stake between Reformed and Lutheran Christologies. And, and on the, those points, at virtually every point, not, not virtually, at every point, I would be with the Lutherans and against the Reformed. I think Reformed theology is, again, all due nuances at play. Reformed theology is just mistaken. It's fundamentally mistaken on who God is, how God is known, how God saves us, how we are to go about the process of talking about who God is and how God saves us. And Breaking free of those categories is essential, and I, I'm, I don't think Lutheran theology is just right at every point, but where Lutheran theology disagrees with Reformed theology, Lutheran theology is, in all the cases I'm familiar with, I think, right. It's, it's closer to the truth on, on virtually every, every point. So now, I've gone in, on here for 45 minutes answering those two questions. Let, let me let me talk a bit about how this relates to Advent. What What's at stake here? What are the metaphysics of Advent if we're letting Jensen kind of guide us? First and foremost, that we, we do not see, we're, we're not waiting on God to reconcile something in himself. Right, that God is not at odds with God. God is not conflicted over us. And just like I want to reject 
the notion that God has to deny himself in order to be our God, that he has to, in a sense, keep himself from being the God he is in order to be the God we need. I, I also want to insist that there is in God no no disease, no no unsettledness in being our God. God does not have to overcome himself in order to come to us. God does not have to forgive himself in order to accept that he has forgiven us. God God does not repent of of, of the glory he means to give us. God God is not glorified by our humiliation. God is not jealous of our glorification. And what we mean, and here, here's why I think Timotheus is right. What God does, he does for us. And instead of seeing that as what leads to self-absorption and a hyper-therapeutic culture, which we've reimagined God simply as a resource for the life we want to make for ourselves, I think truly understanding who it is that loves us and how that love has come to us, forms us to that love so that we become people whose lives are marked by that same kind of canonic self-giving, again, in which we are capable in a missional way, in a pastoral way of self-restraint. But that self-restraint is revelatory of a fullness that is all the fuller when it is because it's not it it's not craving its own space it it's precisely in humility showing itself showing its dignity I mean, notice one of the attributes that are spelled out there for god is is dignity god is is loving but whole, but also holy also just and he has a dignity that must be honored according to that reformed line of thought. But what is God's dignity and how, how is it known? I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting word, dignity. The incarnation is not undignified. Right? In, in the incarnation, God is not losing his dignity. We might imagine it to be so because we imagine our dignity to, to consist in a kind of control, a kind of mastery, a kind of power over suffering that, in fact, is the result of what sin and death have done to our imaginations, the ways in which the the darkness of the gone wrong world has disoriented our hearts. But that's, that's not where dignity consists. Dignity holds in the incarnation from beginning to end. And Jesus is not undignified. And what's He's not, he's, his dignity is not taken from him, even in those moments in which he's humiliated. Because his dignity cannot be taken from him. He, he holds his dignity even under, under the duress of the cross, even under the duress of betrayal and abandonment and torture, the abuse that's hurled at him, the, the physical abuse and as well as spiritual abuse that's hurled at him. He he maintains his dignity. He holds his dignity. And that that tells you that dignity does not have to do with the impression he leaves or with image as we think of it. It's essential to who he is. And the incarnation does not introduce a, a, a conflict into God between the Father and the Son 
or between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There, there's no, no way in which God is set at odds with God by the Incarnation. Another way of saying that is that the Incarnation does not change God, and it does not conceal what's true of God. It reveals. So the hiddenness of the Incarnation is a revelation of God's essential goodness, and that in God that is beyond Beyond good, not in the sense that it's not good, but it's too good for our conceptions of goodness to ever catch up to. Right? There, there's, there's too much goodness in God for our talk about goodness to do justice to what it means for God to be good. And in Advent, we are waiting for that God who's already here to come again, the, the God who's already at work in us to take up that work in some new way. Advent is... A season of waiting, yes. It's a season of darkness. It's a season of preparing ourselves for traditionally what are called the four last things of death and judgment and heaven and hell. It's it's a time in which we are preparing for the glory that is to come, the glory of Christmas, the glory of Epiphany. And yet it's essential that we recognize that that waiting is happening within the waiting of God for us, that that our waiting is a waiting on a God who's already acting, already acted and acting, and a God who's already present, and a God who's already present in a way that still allows for him to come to us, and a God who's already acting in a way that allows surprises to come to us. To talk about any of that in anything like a meaningful way requires uh, deep structural changes to our theology. It requires us to to reimagine, to d- deeply reconfigure how we speak of who God is and how we speak of how God relates to us. And what I'd want to emphasize more than anything else, and, and here I think it's in response both to Cameron and to Michael, We have to insist that God does not have to become less than himself in order to be all that we need. God does not set himself at odds with God in order to include us in God's life. And loving us does not introduce into God some conflictedness. God does not, if we can put it like this, God does not lose sleep over the fact that we're the ones He's chosen to love. And again, that's we can think of that both in terms of the triune life and in terms of the Son in relation to the Father. For the Son to love us does not set him at odds with the Father. For the Son to give his life for us does not make it so that the Spirit is grieved. The Son giving his life for us is what the Father wills. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Son can give his life for us precisely because the Spirit who is God is empowering him, impelling him into that obedience. So in Advent, we're waiting on a God who, who is not reluctant. We're waiting on a God who's not late and is not gone. We're, we're waiting on a God who's already present and whose presence and activity and nearness and generosity makes this kind of waiting possible. We're waiting on a God whose waiting makes our waiting possible. And we're waiting not for God to be good, finally, not for God to get better at being God. We're waiting for the goodness of God that's already at work in our lives to come to a fullness 
that enables us to be more of who we're called to be. What needs to happen, in a sense, is not for Christ to be born, but for Christ to be born in me. What needs to happen is not Christmas again, but for me and for you, for for the church to become, to be raised up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of that baby that's in Mary's arms. To we, There needs to be an epiphany, right? What creation in Romans 8, what creation is calling out for is a manifestation of the sons of God, for, for you and for me to be born anew, for Christ to be shaped in us and for us to take the shape of Christ's life, to take the shape of neediness and absolute dependence that Christ takes as he comes to us at Christmas. This is what Advent is for. And we can speak about that well, or anything like well, only if we get past kind of cheap and cliched ways of thinking about what it means for God to be God and what it means for God to be God to us. In conclusion, then, I'm going to go back to Jensen's Theology and Outline to the chapter on sin and salvation and talk briefly about what it is that he says happens in the cross in the moment of crucifixion between the father and the son. He does this in dialogue with von Balthasar and he agrees with Balthasar that in the record of the scripture's record of the crucifixion, there is something cataclysmic and intensely dramatic happening between Jesus and his father. I'll I'll pick it up here. Jesus cry on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Says von Balthasar, suggests that Christ was indeed forsaken by God the Father. It follows that in the life of God himself, there was an event in the style of King Lear or Oedipus Rex, where the story comes to a halt and it is unclear that it will resume. This is drama at its most intense. How does this event, this dramatic stop in God's own life, bring about atonement? In the Theodramatic, von Balthasar puts the point in terms of goodness and freedom, that God is good and that we can be good, these are von Balthasar's starting points, means that together we and God can act freely. For von Balthasar, and surely he is correct, freedom occurs only in the meeting of persons. It is only when I meet someone different from me, and only if in that meeting I am challenged, that I might possibly become someone different from the person I already am. Freedom is a possibility for me, but it is not something that I possess. It is something that occurs in the meeting of one person and another. Specifically, it occurs when at least two persons pose new possibilities to one another, which is to say, it only occurs in the context of a drama. And now, Jensen says, this is true of both God and man. Yet God is free in himself because as triune, he is a drama in himself. This is right at the heart of Jensen's entire project, right? That God's life is dramatic. That God's life is, in a sense, storyable in itself. Not that God is a story. Francesco Aaron Murphy wrote a critique of Jensen and others entitled, God is not a story. And Jensen is not quite saying that God is a story, but he is saying that God's life is something like storyable. In one of, in the, I think it's the On the Ascension essay, but it may be his essay on Origen's account of the Father and impassibility, that we, we must be able to say there is in God 
something like what we know as time, as as the movement of time. Not that God is temporal, not certainly not that God is conditioned by the shifts of time, but that there is movement in God. There's there's something dynamic and lively. God God's life unfolds in a sense. It, it's not static. God God's life is not boring. Right? God's life is not dead. It's lively. And what we know as liveliness is related to succession, to development, to unfolding. And so we must speak of it in that way. And that we can speak of it in that way, Jensen would argue, it is a sign that God's life is disclosed, or at least, if not disclosed, hinted at in our experience of things. Right? Leaving that aside for, for the moment, I, I think Jens is trying to emphasize in this in this particular passage is that freedom occurs, it happens as the event that God is and the event of our becoming one with God, our being at one with God. That's what's happening at Christmas and in the whole story of Jesus. We're being storied into the storyable life of God. We're, we're being brought in. I love how in English we can talk about a story as a narrative, and we can also talk about stories in in the sense of floors of a house or floors of a building, and that there there is room in God. Again, back to Jensen, God is roomy. There is room in God, both narratively and architecturally, for us. I go to prepare a place for you. God's life. There's a, there's an architectonics to God's life that can that has room for us. Like we can fit inside of God without God being changed by our inclusion, without God being made a different God by our tabernacling in him. And narratively, God can share the story with us without edging us out or being edged out, right? Without without God being in any kind of rivalrous relationship with us. And that that's the theme for me. In, in this in this entire talk, that there is no conflict or rivalry in God or between us and God that is not the result of sin and what sin has done to our knowing, our knowing and being. And and God is at one with God, and God is at one with us, and that at one is happening to us in such a way that both our knowing and our being are being redeemed, being altered, being healed, so that we recognize that there is no rivalry that rivalry there there is there is no conflict there's no conflict in god over us and there is no conflict between god and us there is again other than the conflict that sin and the powers of death have brought about that is the conflict that is playing out at the cross and this is why jens is wrong to say that the crucifixion is a kind of intermediate good or a kind of lesser good that makes a greater good possible. The crucifixion is the overcoming. It's good only insofar and exactly in as much as it is the overcoming of the conflict that sin has introduced into our relation to God and into us. That sin does not get introduced, does not introduce conflict into the life of God or God's motives in loving us or God's feelings toward us or God's action toward us. The conflict is always in our knowing and in our relating, not in God's. This, I think, is essential. 
And so I'll give Jens the last word here. The, the emphasis needs to be on the freedom God brings about by freely loving us. So yes, challenged, but it's specifically the challenge of God's humble love, God's simple delight in us, the, the purity of God's delight in our goodness. That's what brings about freedom. What, what sets me free is, is the demand of God, not as my superior, but the demand of God as the one who is for me so radically that he prefers me to himself, that God would rather not be God at all than be God without me. The, the, the radicality of that devotion, that God does not love me for the use I have for God, that God does not love me instrumentally, but absolutely, that God's love for me is unconditional in the sense that it's, it's a love that conditions everything else and is itself not conditioned by my utility, not conditioned by my worthiness, that it, it is absolute. And it's when I encounter that freedom, when I encounter that personal reality, when I come up against that love, that I begin to flourish toward my own freedom, toward my own being. And again, Advent is the season preparing for that, the season of letting ourselves be present to that kind of love, letting ourselves be present to that kind of freedom, which is disorienting and overwhelming at times. It it is a kind of darkness, but it is a darkness that we do not need to fear.